week. A clear leader is established in the Prem as Liverpool and City both drop points. Nuno and Ole duke it out in the El Sacco um, and Paddy Vieira throws stones despite being employed by a big glass house. Um, now, no Colby this week uh, on the pod. He got married yesterday. So, um, yep, Colby and his wife got uh, married on the banks of the Brisbane River with some beautiful views of the Story Bridge. Um, and although the, the three of us couldn't make it there because of COVID restrictions, um, I know the three of us and everyone fr- from the More Than A Game community just want to wish Colby and his beautiful bride a, a big congratulations on their big day yesterday. So, um, look, we, we try to be more than a game here, and I guess today we were. Um, all right. Uh, on the pod this week, we've got uh, Damo, who's who's potting by candlelight um, due to the the lack of power situation um, in in southeast um, southeast Melbourne. How are you today, mate? I'm good. I'm good. Still got a bit of natural light coming through the window. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> I do, I probably could have in, uh, introduced that as like some mood lighting or something like that. I missed the opportunity there, right? Yeah. I'm I'm usually on the pod with my influencer lighting with uh, right on my face. So <laughs> the ring light, yeah. Stark, stark difference tonight. <laughs> Very good. And joining us and and uh, completing the panel is Jesse. How are you today, mate? Yeah, I'm good. I mean, we're all a little bit dusty. Um, and and I'm just so. I mean, I'm great. I'm grateful, uh, Damo, that we've got some some people from an international audience. It's great to see some people from Phillip Island on the um on the pod today. <laughs> um, so welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Um, I didn't uh, think you'd go overseas yet. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. But no, I'm I'm, I'm feeling good, and um, I just wanted to echo the uh, what you were saying before with uh, Colby and um, and his marriage. So it was just, that, that was you know you've gone you've gone early on my moment of the week, um, Tommy. So um, you know I'll have to come up with a new one, <laughs> mate. I reckon you've got about sixty seconds uh, for for Damon to finish his for you to think of another one. <laughs> All right, Damo, all right, I'll let you go first then. What was your moment of the week? My moment of the week had to be, uh, as someone who's not a fan of Manchester United, the fallout of the the defeat against Liverpool and everything that happened in the week following. Uh, I mean, from, from the game itself, the heaviest loss um, at their own ground ever to, a, a, to you know, a massive rival, to Sir Alex Ferguson turning up at the training ground a couple of days later, apparently... Um, working out who's going to be the next manager for the club to then report he was actually only there getting a suit fitted. Um, you know, it's just, it's been an absolute mess. And then they publicly came out and backed Ollie on, on like Thursday, you know, 48 hours before their next game. It's, it's just been an absolute mess. But as someone who doesn't really like Manchester United, it's been great to watch. <laughs> it's great entertainment. Does that mean you're very much Ollie in? <laughs> yeah, big time. Ollie in. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Yeah, like you say, just so many, so many weird aspects to it. I mean, so so many people seem to have their opinions on it, and I don't mean just sort of pundits and the the football community. I mean people within the club and around the club, just bizarre. And I mean, of course, when when I go for a suit fitting, the first place I go to is a football club. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Jesse, what about you, mate? Have you had time to, to come up with one or, or should I go next? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was actually, you know, having watched the game, the, the Leicester-Arsenal game together last night, I think you have to have a shout out for old Ramsdale's save. Um, uh, Damon and I, after a day of um, uh, quite a few Proseccos and et cetera, uh, were very critical <laughs> of, uh, of the save and sort of thought, oh, it's a good save, not a great save. Um, but, uh, but I think that was probably the alcohol talking because, um, upon reflection, uh, you know, I think we, I think what we thought was that he'd kind of, uh, crept to the corner of the net and then had to make a big effort to make up for his lost space. But uh, having watched it again, he actually was pretty well positioned that it was a really good save. So, um, I mean, I guess it's a learning for everybody. Um, don't be too critical after a few beers. Put some respect on Ramsdale's <laughs> name. He's got to be at least in the top five keepers in the, in the league. Isn't that right, Damo? I'll, I'll let you talk about that. <laughs> I, um, I, I did I did say to uh, a couple of people today in a group chat that, I mean, yeah, Ramsdale, he's, he's a good mid-table Premier League goalkeeper, so I guess he's found his place at Arsenal. Oh, oh just... <laughs> Oh, look, there was there was plenty of big news items uh, this week and uh, plenty of candidates for, for moment of the week. But look, I really couldn't go past uh, my own West Ham's win over Manchester City in the Manchester City Cup, aka the Carabao Cup, aka the League Cup. Um, it was the first time Manchester City have lost an overall tie in 23 matches, um, although they did lose uh, to Manchester United in the second leg of a semi um, recent, in recent years. So um, pretty big big result for for West Ham. Both teams did put out sort of not quite second string sides, but sort of like somewhere between a first and a second string side. But look, um, teams like Manchester City, Liverpool, Manchester United, it, it doesn't matter if you're playing the second string side, like they, they would finish mid-table in the Premier League anyway. So look, um, pretty pretty ma- uh, massive result uh, for, for, for my boys this week. Um, what about you guys? Uh, own goal, uh, Jesse? Uh, it was hard to find one. I mean, it was it was a bit of a mess. So I guess you could say Spurs, um, Leicester. I mean, there's a few of the performances. I mean, it's hard to go past the rugby tackle of Laporte, um, <laughs> who um, obviously, um, you know, in a parallel universe was playing for the All Blacks against Wales and Cardiff <laughs> um, and decided to just, um, you know, pull, pull his man down when actually, if you look at it, they had a bit of cover there. Um, it would have been a, a, a sprint for one of the fullbacks to get there, but they weren't completely stuffed there. So for him to actually tackle him was to so, sort of make up for his bad position in the first place um, was just like he just he he gave the referee a decision to make, whereas he didn't need to. Like he could have like I don't know. Like it just was it was a really panicky um, foul, and I think a lot of people were surprised when the red came out, but. Um, yeah, it's, it can't be overturned if he does it right. I mean, unless they VAR think he actually really screwed up, I mean, it's gonna the decision's going to stand. So it's a serious, you know it's a serious situation if the referee goes straight to red, which mm. is what he did in that case. Yeah. It was um, it was a strange red card, uh, I guess, because it it felt really soft because he's still he's still thirty five um, yards, I think, from from goal. So, but um, who was it? it was Zahar. Zahar still had a lot to do, and um, I, I don't know how far away. I, I can't remember how far away the likes of sort of say Kyle Walker was, um, but I mean Kyle Walker is one of the quickest players in the league, right? Like he's someone that can cut, get across and cover. So, um, but but having said that though, um, Manchester City do get the rub of the green with yellow cards and and Fernandinho and the like, and it it feels like the universe sort of smiled on uh, smiled the other way uh, for once, rather than just um, sort of giving Manchester City sort of the rub of the green, and it, it felt like um, I guess uh, the the universe finally giving one one the other way. 
Um, Damon, what about you, mate? You got an own goal this week? Yeah, and, and it's it's funny that you mentioned West Ham was your moment of the week. Uh, my oh. own goal comes from West Ham itself. There we go. Uh, I'm sure you saw this, Tommy. One of the owners, uh, one of the Dildo brothers, David Gold, <laughs> I think his name oh. is. Um, yep, yep. Sent out a tweet yesterday congratulating Issa Diop on his 100th game for the club but posted a picture of uh, Xander Silva, I think his name is. So that that is a, a massive own goal. <laughs> Both players just happen to be black. So, I mean, it does seem as though he, he it's easy for them to get confused for, for him. I actually think he's done something like this before where I think he posted, um, it might have been a, a tweet about Ogbonna and he, he posted a, another photo of a black player. And at this point, it, it's really hard to tell which are the official um, uh, Twitter pages and which are the parody ones. Because, I mean, <laughs> the fact that he's done, I mean, look, he is, I'm pretty sure he's in his 70s, his late 70s. So, look, he's getting on. I mean, people make mistakes, but, I mean, come on. Well, it's, he's made a living of designing things to fuck people. Um, so why not, you know, do the same with words? Yeah, well, his reputation's <laughs> fucked as well, isn't it? So. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, well. If any, if any man could fuck himself, it's that man. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, so for for me, my own, uh, my own goal this week was uh, to do with uh, something that people might remember from back in the uh, in the northern summer. Um, Christian Eriksen obviously had that massive cardiac arrest on the field playing for Denmark at the Euros. Um, big moment in football that sort of uh, brought brought the world together in as a reminder that yep, football is really important, but sometimes there are things that are just more than a game as part of uh, football. But um, Ericsson, sort of, uh, he's continuing his his rehab at the moment with a view to returning to play for Inter. But um, it looks as though, as as part of his recovery, he was he was fitted with a basically a device um, which sort of, um, if he does experience cardiac arrest again, it sort of basically defibrillates his heart to um, to start again. Um, now, the Italian Football Federation, um, they don't allow uh, professional players to, to play um, with, with these these heart devices. So it's looking like Ericsson either won't be able to play again if he wants to stay in Italy or uh, that he'll have to go somewhere else. Now, um, there is, I guess, a chance that maybe he could go to uh, to the Netherlands. I, um, I read today that Daily Blind has has one um, one of the same devices fitted um, uh, from a few years ago, and he's been able to continue playing for Ajax and uh, in the Champions League, no less. So um, there there is some precedent there that that Ericsson could uh, continue on and, and have a, a great career for the next few years. But um, I, I guess a little bit sad that. Um, and I think it is for a, for a very valid reason that they don't allow um, players with those um, with those heart devices fitted. But I guess a little bit sad that he he may not be able to to play probably the level that maybe he could um, uh, in the future. So that's that's my own goal. So f- football um, entities, you know, let's just um, run players into the ground. Also, football entities, let's not give them anything to support their hearts. Um, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, that's kind of. I mean, no, no one's going to not get the that uh, device fitted if they've had cardiac arrest, right? Um, but at the same time, I don't think anyone's going to sort of force that decision on themselves or have that decision forced on upon them. It just means they're going to have to go elsewhere. And it looks like Inter, they're happy to say, okay, well, if, if you can't play for us, we're happy to sort of release you from your contract. So um, interesting times, I guess, ahead. And, I mean, if, if there's one uh, one former um, 
uh, Premier League club of, of his that could probably do with a, a player like Ericsson, maybe the Ericsson from a few years ago, but um, that's that's Spurs and um, never know, maybe we could see, see Ericsson pop up in the Premier League um, shortly. So yeah, well, Spurs, Spurs are lacking a bit of heart at the moment, so he'd, he'd fit right in. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Man, going to start calling you David Gold because that was fucked. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, look, a, a few listener, que- uh, sorry, uh, news items this uh, week um, to talk about. First one uh, was a big one, which um, big piece of news. Um, we'll call it football-related news because that's really what it was. Um, and it was Josh Cavallo coming out as a, an openly gay footballer this week. Um, made massive news in Australia, all over the commercial news channels, but also all around the world as well. Um, so pretty massive for, for Josh. Um, the football community really showed its best side as there was unanimous support uh, ringing out for the young man from, from all over Australia and all around the world, uh, with some of the world's most famous clubs and players showing their support. Um, I, we're just really chuffed for Josh that he was able to, um, that he felt the time and the situation was right for him to make the announcement. It's clearly, it was a massive deal for him. Um, and I guess it's fantastic that he's just able to be sort of um, uh, honest with himself and the world about who he is and um, I guess it's a it's a re- it very much easily could have been sort of a moment of the week but um, I don't know it, it felt bigger than a moment of the week to be honest so um, really great to see. I think a lot of the a lot of credit has to go and, and I've spoken before about how I think Carl Vitt's a shit bloke clearly he's not a shit <laughs> bloke um, he in massive credit to Adelaide United the club and the group of players that are at the club that made it a safe enough environment for him to be ready to do that. So that's also a note to make is that, you know, obviously things that Adelaide United are in a really great space if you've got a player that's willing to be that comfortable. Well, and I mean, he's only been there for, I think, a year as well, having come from uh, from Melbourne City. So, um, yeah, it's like you say, it speaks to not just Adelaide United, but I think the um, the – uh, the A leagues as well. They've they obviously were involved in this as well, and sort of like pre- um, preparing the ground so that he could um, um, make the announcement because obviously the media were aware as well. Um, so good, uh, good play all round from everyone. Um, next up is something that is, we've kind of already discussed a little bit. We'll go into a little bit more detail about uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer not getting sacked by by Manchester United. Um, it felt like this was a done deal that he was going to get sacked. It was just a case of when Conte seemed like the the player, uh, sorry, the the manager who was most strongly linked with the soon to be vacated seat. But it it just never happened, even though it felt like it was just inevitable. Um, really bizarre, I thought. Um, and I'm not sure if either of you have got anything else to that you want to add as well. It's quarter four of the Super Bowl and. You need someone to uh, throw that that hail mary, and you give it to Ole because he, he'll never get sacked. Uh, he'd make the <laughs> make the perfect <laughs> make the perfect quarterback. Very um, good. Very but, good. Um, I was wondering where you were going with that. I'm like, man, yeah, this is I, niche. But I don't I, think we've I talked NFL on the pod before. I wasn't sure myself, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but I, I have to say, it, it's it is just unfolding the way it always does with Ole, where he's he's the furnace has been applied, and somehow he still pulls a performance out of his ass and. He's, and now you've got these the same newspapers which are saying he's gone two days ago. Uh, and now, like, has he saved his job? And it's just, it's a circus. It's an absolute circus. The, I think the, the thing for me is it's almost like on on Thursday before the club had publicly came out and backed um, Solskjaer that said he's, he's going to be the manager carrying forward. It's almost like the newspapers were reporting that Conte or Pochettino, whoever else, had already signed a contract. You know, just... 
the the way people were talking about it was like, oh, it's a done deal. He's gone. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it was my it was my moment of the week for a reason. It's just been so fun to watch it unfold, and just United fans on on social media particularly just melt down. I mean, also there was um, there was plenty of insights into sort of how the club is being run and, and also sort of how the broader, um, I guess, elite level of football views the club as well. I mean, the fact that um, it, it was pretty pretty publicly known that, that Conte seemed to have some some pretty strong reservations about actually joining the club, that um, he was unsure about sort of the structure of the club, unsure about joining, how much influence he would have over transfers. And, and he... he um, sees that there is a couple of gaping holes, particularly at sort of defensive midfielder. And, I mean, also you probably argue that he would likely come in and say that they need a, a right-sided wing-back as well. Shimmy wants to play three at the back. So um, the fact that he wasn't fully committed to the idea that may have uh, may have influenced the idea of keeping Ole on for a little bit longer as well. So Ashley Young back to United, January 2022. <laughs> Is he still an Inter or where, where is he now? Is it, Villa? He, is it Villa? Oh, oh, that's yeah. right. Sorry, I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, very good. Mid midseason transfer. Yeah, you've got a, you've got a ready-made wing back in Marcus Rashford, real Victor Moses style. <laughs> real Jose Mourinho territory as well, right? I think he we didn't quite turn him into a wing back, but he damn tried his hardest. <laughs> Jaden Sancho would be great, great wing back. Yeah, well, he, he can't score any goals, so you might as well put him there. Yeah, um, even Stragan has popped Hag. into the even yeah, Stragan has popped up into the into the comments saying that uh, speaking as a Man United fan, if Ole was to get replaced, I'd go for Eric Ten Hag at, at, at Ajax, which um, is an interesting shout because um, uh, a friend of the pod, uh, Johnny Stomo, he was uh, telling me this week that um, Ten Hag has actually been linked with with the Newcastle job, and so um, still, I guess, very interesting to to see where he ends up at maybe somewhere in the Premier League, maybe they end up at Spurs, maybe. We just have to wait and find out. And I think, I think uh, on that note about him being linked with Newcastle, they were ready to offer him ne nearly quadruple his cur current salary at Ajax or something like that. So, I mean, as is going to come the nature with Newcastle, like it did with City at the start and Chelsea at the start, they're going to have to pay overs for everyone, but they just will mm -hmm. because they've got the money. It, it doesn't shock me though, because I mean, like if you're the manager at Ajax, you're probably not on massive money anyway. Even though, yeah, they're in the Champions League, everyone views them as a big club. They don't have the financial muscle of of any of those other bigger clubs in in bigger leagues. Um, another player, sorry, another manager who was actually sacked this week was uh, Ronald Koeman. He's gone from the Barca job, which I mean, I, I've got a feel for this guy because he's been he's been gunning for this Barca job for years. And he finally gets it, and it's um, basically at a, at a period where the, the club is just in absolute uh, and utter turmoil with Messi leaving. The financial system uh, situation is completely fucked. Um, you've, you've got, they, what did they sign, Aguero and a couple of uh, other free transfers, and they, they weren't able to register them. You can't think of a, a worse situation to be joining a club, really. And um, it, it was almost inevitable that I, I felt that he was going to get sacked. Um, it looks oh. as though Xavi is going to replace him, Jesse. I was just going to say, Tommy, the you know the analogy I'd use is you, you, you're 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 working hard, you're saving money, you're skipping your avocados on toast, you're saving up for that first house, um, yeah. you're trying to get into the property market, um, you buy it. And then everything's rotten and there's asbestos and, um, and uh, you know, all of a sudden you realize you've bought a massive dud. And um, that's essentially what happened with Kerman at Barcelona. 
and it's just an absolute uh, absolute it's oddly mess. specific jesse yeah um <laughs> you know i had some pretty vivid dreams last night damn it um, <laughs> a red wine really got to your brain yeah no but it just it is like one of those things where it's like you know he has he as you say tommy like it's it must be so emotionally like it must just screw you emotionally to be so invested in that club as well so much history with it as a player as well and then to get there and for it not to be what you expected it to be and um it just i just can't imagine how awkward and uncomfortable that would be and not just with him but also his relationship with the the fan base and all the people that would obviously idolize him at, at other times it's just i just that's why sometimes i prefer players to not go back and manage their former clubs it's just yeah, it yeah. Be, yeah. Well, you can see what happened with sort of Lampard at Chelsea, right? It's sort of, yeah, you could make a case that it sort of tainted his legacy somewhat. But it's I know almost, a lot of fans still love like, him, so. It's almost like Xavi at Barcelona is is going to be a nightmare in waiting because the fans are so in love with him. He's one of their greatest players of all time. As soon as things start don't don't go the right way at, at Barcelona, particularly that the fans are very very quick to turn. So it'll be interesting to see how long it takes him to turn on someone like Xavi, who is one of their favourite sons. He was great at beating the press, and he's going to have to be great at beating the press again. <laughs> well played. Um, it's just got to be one of those jobs that you'd have to say no one, no one would want it in world football right now because it's just a complete not a basket case. I mean, it, it, it's it's like the fans think that sacking Komen is going to completely turn around the club immediately. Mm. There's there's a lot more to it than than replacing your manager for Barcelona at the moment. So may, maybe the fans will will kind of sit sit with that and understand that and have a bit more patience and time with Xavi. But um, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see because Barcelona fans aren't patient at the best of times. Nope, especially uh, when they they yet to really realise the full impact on the pitch of of Messi no longer being there as well. I think so. Mm. Just a just a final thing, and this this is something that I didn't have in my twenty twenty one bingo card, as you'd say, Tommy. Um, is <laughs> there's some weird parallels between what's going on with Barca and Newcastle? Because if the, the people are talking about for Newcastle to slowly build, they need to bring in these temporary players that are there for one or two years who kind of get them up to a certain level. And then when they're sort of ready to be sort of disposed, then you bring in the big, the big guns. Well, Bass is kind of the same with the manager because you've got to either convince somebody that you're going to be part of a five or six year project and you are the manager, you're the one, or you're going to say to somebody, Hey, do you mind just, you know, being hired as a temp contract for a couple of years? And <laughs> once we're done with you out the door, you go, I mean, Obviously, some managers would be happier for the pay, um, understandable, but it's kind of like a catch-22, and you can get stuck where you're not quite attractive enough for the average manager, but you're also not quite ready for the the big dog. So I, I do think there's a weird sort of parallel between what's going on with New, Newcastle in the coming months and where Barca is at the moment, and I never thought in my lifetime I would compare the two. I'm not sure if it's quite the same um, uh, parallel, but... Um, I actually would more likely maybe compare it to uh, to Manchester United once Fergie left. Um, and although Messi wasn't the manager there, it's a similar huge gaping hole that's been left at the club in terms of influence and and also like results are suffering as as well. So um, I think it's a bit of a it was a bit of a poison chalice. Um, whoever was the manager after Fergie, because. Uh, even still, Fergie's shadow just looms very, very large over over um, Men United, and I think that's what, what what we're likely to see at, at Barcelona is that Messi's shadow is going to loom very large for a long time, and people are going to have very, very high expectations for a long time too. So, um, 
yeah, just another perspective on it, I guess. Um, all right, uh, back onto some Australian football now. Um, the Isuzu Ute A League uh, fixture list was released late in the week. A um, couple of big takeaways though were looks like we're uh, going to be having two legged semi finals though. Guys like that idea? Indifferent? Love it? I love it. I think it's great. I think it it uh, just it adds more fixtures to the calendar for Australian football. Uh, and I think uh, two-leg semifinals just add uh, – it gives both sets of fans the opportunity to have a semifinal at home. And it also um, is, is – it just adds a different element to it. Um, you know, we, we see it in in some, some cups around the world, that the Champions League obviously have two legs and, and some of the narratives that can come from two-legged games are brilliant. And it's something that I think the A-League haven't done for a long time. I think they did it maybe 10, 11, 12 years ago, but – um, towards the early years of the A-League, and uh, I think it's a great reintroduction. Jesse? Yeah, um, I've, I mean, obviously from a biased um, perspective, um, I just went straight to the Phoenix fixtures. Um, but uh, on the two-legged so thing, I think So not the two-legged semifinals? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 was, um, I wasn't even paying attention to the two-legged. Uh, basically, that was news to me. Uh, but I... Didn't check the run sheet, obviously, either. No, no, I, Sorry. <laughs> I did. I was aware that they'd made some changes, but I didn't. I wasn't aware that it was uh, two-legged semifinals. But I am, like you guys, excited about that because I think that it actually will bring in, kind of like what we often want, which is some of the European feel, um, and that kind of like drama that you get with the two-legged. So I, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, sorry, what I was also meaning though, um, on a different note, was just the fact that um, uh, the Phoenix, obviously, even based in Wollongong, uh, was probably the top of my um, my list as far as checking out what's going on from my perspective because um, I didn't know where they were going to go. I was Obviously, most clubs knew exactly where they were going to start the season, but my club mm-hmm. was uh, kind of, you know, on the road until um, a few days ago. Yeah, no, that, that is a good point. And I guess it's it's disappointing, but obviously understandable why the, the Phoenix is going to be based out of Wollongong again. And obviously the the, the real winners out of that are, are Wollongong as well, that they'll have an and, A-League team based and, there and, for, and, for another 12 months. And Chico's as well. They're the real winners. <laughs> Well, that means that the the Phoenix are winners because they get to go to Chico's every week. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, look, the other thing I picked out from this was that um, I, I think there's there's a missed opportunity here in that the final round of fixtures aren't going to be played simultaneously. Obviously, we do see that in the Premier League that uh, the final round is is all at a I think it's a one o'clock kickoff on a or three o'clock kickoff on a on a Sunday afternoon. Um, Obviously, I understand why the the A League have chosen not to do um, to do that, it's so they can get as many many um, games onto TV um, as possible. But still, I guess uh, a little bit disappointing that that opportunity has been missed because we talk about drama before when we're talking about the final series when there's possibly a title on the on the line or um, an, an A League. Uh, um, Playoff spot up for grabs, obviously, huge uh, opportunity for drama uh, there. So, bit of a missed opportunity, I think, as far as that goes. Um, all right, finally, before we get into the Prem, uh, Matildas, they hosted Brazil uh, again uh, this week in the second of their two-game series. Claire Polkingham again, and Sam Kerr got on the score sheet. Um, big talking point was probably Sam Kerr's goal, which got tongues wagging with the incisiveness of the counter-attack. A lot of people saying that was one of the best goals that they've seen from from the Matildas this year uh, or, or even in recent memory. So great stuff there. 
Um, the 75% capacity crowd also bodes well for, for future Socceroos and Matildas games in the near future. Um, and it's since been announced that the Socceroos are going to be playing Saudi Arabia on the 11th of November in just under two weeks um, at Combank Stadium in, in Parramatta. So um, very, very exciting stuff um, there. Yeah, um, and I, right. think you, I think you could see watching those Matildas games how much being back in Australia meant to the team and it kind of really drove them on. And and for we, we've spoken about this Saudi Arabia game and we will obviously speak about it when it comes around again, but it's such a huge fixture and for it to be back in Australia in front of Australian fans is just a huge, huge bonus. So that was a huge piece of news for me. Good stuff. All right, next up, the Premier League. The pendulum of possession is swinging back the way of Brighton as the game has advanced. Kukurea finding space, finding Lalana, Lalana, Trossard, Trossard, good feet, good goal, goodness gracious me! Shades of Mo Salah about that finish. It's Liverpool to Brighton to. Oh, from back to front, it's one of the passing goals of the season. Sanchez, it's a brilliant ball, and the speed of the ball creates the opportunity. This game's been drifting. Now Brighton taking the chance. So we're gonna we're gonna start off today with the El Sacco that was Spurs hosting Manchester United. Um, this was a late kickoff on Saturday, so naturally we didn't watch it um, last night. Um, but it involved uh, Nuno and Ole facing off at Spurs' brand new stadium. Manchester United switched to a back three, um, as it appeared as though Ole was trying to do his best Conte impersonation to remove the need for him to be sacked and Conte to, to fill his place. Um, seemed to do the trick, though, as a motivated Manchester United pretty easily swatted aside a lacklustre Spurs side struggling for form. Boys, uh, a little bit of Manchester United chat first um, before we talk about Spurs. Um, what do you think about the the move to a back three? Do you think uh, Ole might stick with that for the next few games or you think this is just a special game plan for, for Spurs? I think the move was mainly so they could have Ronaldo and Cavani start up front together. And I think that was really the only formation that made sense with the players they've got to, to get those two up front together. So uh, I think if, if they're going to continue to try and play them together up front, which obviously yielded great results, they combined for a couple of goals um, then, yeah, I think they'll they'll keep this formation as long as they want to keep playing those two in that way. I think the like the big challenge with this is uh, this formation, and and why I even wonder if Conte might have been a little bit concerned about taking the job was that. I mean, Manchester United just paid eighty million pounds for for Sancho. They've got Rashford, who could probably quite easily fit into, I guess, a, a pairing up front. But I mean, he's best played off of the left. Um, and and then you've got Greenwood as well, who yeah, look, he, he probably actually has played his best football this season um, off of the um, uh, when when played up front, but um, by himself. So I think that that is a concern that. Like if you're playing a uh, three at the back, you're not really going to be playing Sancho as a wing back, are you? So, um, I guess remains to be seen for me uh, whether or not, uh, even if Ole wants to play three at the back, if he really can kind of afford to do it, even if the results are going his way. Yeah, I, I um, I love three at the back. I mean, not not just in Premier League, but just in in various leagues. I just love I love the the shape. Um, I think it can be, it can, it, I think there's so many ways that you can um, manipulate who would normally be a wing back with a winger 
and like you, you know, a lot of people sort of fall into the trap of thinking that oh no you're just going to ruin a perfectly good winger and make them into like a really defensive um wing back and i know in some systems that does happen but it doesn't have to be that way like on one side you can have a um like a more of a who would normally be a left back, a playing left wing back. Type. yeah and then on the other one you can have someone who's incredibly progressive and is far more of a winger than the other one and you can invert them and i don't know like i just think there's a lot of ways that you can actually um uh, mold it to, to whatever the manager wants and then you can base it around the two that are in front of you and Guys, I mean, this is what we do and every time there's a partnership brewing um, in any club. Is, is What's the hybrid name going to be? I mean, I've got an early one. Is it Edison Naldo? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they always need something, don't they? You know, they always need something. You've got to have like a hybrid name for them. So, CCs, you just can't say no to Cavani and Cristiano up front? CCs. Tasty. Like the chips. <laughs> Oh, I just I, licking his fingers covered with, with yellow cheese <laughs> sauce. <laughs> I, I think um, worth noting about the, the three at the back and, and w- when people often talk about, oh, a manager's playing three at the back or a manager's playing five at the back or whatever it is when they change something around, just because that's what's on paper doesn't necessarily mm. mean that's where the team stays the whole game, right? Mm. And, and I think if you were to watch this game back, Manchester United probably attacked in a three-five-two, so they could have the two strikers. But then they definitely didn't defend in a three-a three-five-two. They uh, they would have had Ronaldo up front by himself, Cavani back tucking in, doing a lot of running. They would have had, you know, McTominay and Fred tucking in defensively. So th- this is almost a five at the back with the ball, or a four at the back, however way you want to look at it. It's formations these days are so fluid. They're just on paper, so that when you've got the ball, there's a generalized shape of having the right players in the right places. I think a, a player like um, Juan Basaka, I think he'd actually be really suited to to sort of playing as like a bit of like a hybrid um, centre back slash fullback. And well, they, and they, they, they do call him swinging rotation, right? They uh, do so call him Spider Man for a reason, um, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That's right. Um, all right, uh, boys. Obviously, uh, Manchester United they scored three goals. Which was your pick of the goals? Oh, it had to be Ronaldo for me, um, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, it was the it was the goal that um, broke the deadlock, hugely important goal. And and I don't know who the commentator was. So Jesse, I always lean on you to tell me who the commentator of each game is. So if you mm. know, you can you can jump in. But I think the commentator put it perfectly when he put it in the back of the net. It's like when Man United needed a big goal, there was it. You needed a big player, and it was it was going to be no one else from Ronaldo that goal and. That kind of set the tone for the rest of the match, I think. And what a hell of a strike it was. It, it really reminded me of the, obviously to a far lesser extent, but the the Van Persie goal uh, with Rooney hitting it over the top, just that same sort of technique where it's coming over your shoulder, just drops over the defender. And you have, really, how, how do you see that? And how do you how do you execute that? But I guess that's why you pay Cristiano Ronaldo 500,000 pounds a week. <laughs> You mentioned about the commentator. I, I think um, I, I can't remember who the second commentator was, but I think the the one that you were talking about, um, Damo. But I think the, the the commentator that I remembered from that game, or the, the piece of commentary I remember, was um, Andy Townsend, who's who's probably my favourite pundit slash commentator at the moment. He he um, there, there was a pause, and he said, "What." A finish. You could tell, like he he really appreciated um, the just the technique uh, from Ronaldo to to pull that off with the the power and the placement um, to be able to to pull off what is an incredibly difficult skill. He's such um, a sympathetic. Um, he's such a sympathetic commentator, isn't he? He's like unlucky, unlucky, 
Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just really he's encouraging. Like, he's like, he's like, nice idea, nice idea. Like he always, um, he's, he's he's basically the opposite of the rest of them who are just absolutely ripping them a new one when they make a mistake. And <laughs> and he's he's thinking it from a footballer's perspective, isn't he? So he, he yeah. is, and I, and I like that because it is a little bit different. But um, but yeah, all right. Look, um, Spurs though, pretty pretty terrible performance from them. Um, if I can if I can borrow an Andy Town uh, Townsend ism again, um, he said that Spurs were insipid and lacking cutting edge, lacking bravery, and were the perfect opponent for a struggling Manchester United side. Um, it's pretty pretty scathing uh, sort of observation. But, um, boys, why why hasn't Nuno been sacked yet? Damo, I know you were talking about this uh, last night, so I'll give you a soapbox to stand on at the moment. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it just comes down to um, Spurs, Daniel Levy, how frugal they are as a club and business-wise and spending and – the two-year contract that Nuno signed um, has a clause that if at the end of uh, the season he doesn't finish in the top six, he can be, you know, sacked from his job with no penalty payment. But mm. if he gets sacked before that, then Spurs have to pay him out in total what he was owed for the next for the remainder of his contract. So um, I think the reason he hasn't been sacked is because despite how poorly it feels like Spurs are doing, they're only one point off the top six. So. Uh, his his goal as a manager this year was to finish in the top six, and he is still well within that area. So he'll go all the way to the end of the season because Spurs will inevitably within be within a game or two of the top six if, if they're not in it. So, uh, yeah, that I feel that's why he's not, not going to be sacked. They're going to give him at least one season. So I guess noting that then that he's sort of he's he's not that far off what the expectations are. Do, do you think uh, that Levy's actually Levy himself? A bit, yeah. Very, and, and I thought, and I thought so very much because when you have a problem with a team, you don't wait till the end of the season to fix it. You try and fix it as soon as possible. So, and usually the first move is to sack the manager. Um, obviously, it's it's probably smart in a way to do it this way, but it also he's he's kind of put himself in a corner and he can't really back out of it unless he pays Nuno out in full. And I'm pretty sure he's on a fairly big contract. Levy just wakes up in the morning with two pieces of white bread and he's like, what are you? You're an idiot sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, gosh. Um, but look, yes, Spurs were pretty terrible. Didn't have a single shot on target um, against David De Gea. Um, the Spurs fans uh, seem to sort of turn on Nuno, I think, a little bit in this game. It could be a little bit of a turning point as far as that goes. Um, they booed the team when the third goal was conceded, which maybe that isn't that unusual for Spurs. Um, they, they booed when Lucas Moura was substituted and Kane just looks disinterested and, well, they didn't figuratively and literally. Yeah, but they it just looks like he doesn't want to be there. It, no, it was like, almost... and, that, and that's that's 100% true, Tommy. Sorry, like I was just going to say, like, yes, he looks like he doesn't want to be there. So that's the, everyone can see that. But then there's the other side of things, which is like they don't, the other players aren't, don't, like I actually thought it was all a little bit of like hype and that, that there was actually nothing to it. But actually watching that game, players were not making the pass to him. Like he was running into space and they were just like, no, they just pass it to Son, pass it to Mora, choose another pass, pass it to square it across. Um how much is that? Is that actually the manager's tactics and more should the players just not giving a shit about him? Because it actually, it actually looked like they weren't interested in uh, prioritizing him. And if you think about how much in the last five, six plus years, it's always been think first, pass it to Harry. Hmm. And I just, I just it thought all- it was visible that they weren't passing to him. I just thought it was weird. 
it almost feels like one of those situations where it seems like he's he's trying too hard as well. Um, mm. That he's he's overdoing things, he's overthinking things. He might be making the run, but it's not really where it needs to be. He's he's doing these one percent of runs into the wrong areas where he doesn't usually go because he thinks that's mm. what he needs to do. Uh, he's coming too deep. He's he's trying to take too many touches. He's trying to hit the perfect pass. Like Harry Kane, he's clearly physically, emotionally burnt out at the moment. You can tell. Uh, he's, he's he's a brilliant player. There is a brilliant player in there, but it's how does he get that back? And it, and I feel like he thinks the way to get that back is to work harder because that's that's what it seems like he's doing. But he's 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 not working the right way. He's doing the wrong things, and it look it really looks to me like he's just trying way too hard. Mm. Yeah, it's um I guess for for Spurs to be successful this season, they have to get the most out of Harry Kane. So um, be interesting to see if if things turn around there in the in the next few weeks or the next few months. Otherwise, yeah, there could be plenty more booing at the the Spurs stadium. Um, Manchester City hosted Crystal Palace uh, last night, and what many would have seen is a pretty straightforward three points for City, but alas, it wasn't to be the case. Um, City had one of those days where the longer the game went on, the worse things seemed to get. Um, just five minutes in, City, uh, the City defence coughed up uh, the ball and um, Wilfred Zaha, um, he snuck in, uh, put the ball past Edison, um, giving Palace a, an early lead. Um, and then City, uh, sorry, Palace uh, were, were defending quite well, quite resolutely um, as City continued to sort of um, uh, bang on the door. But... Uh, Things really sort of uh, then were, were taken a little bit further out of uh, City's reach as uh, as Laporte was sent off. For, um, I think everyone would agree it was a pretty rubbish uh, foul. Um, maybe some plausible deniability there, but um, he he did seem to. Uh, I think many would argue that it was a um, a harsh red card, though. Um, boys, we we were watching the Leicester Arsenal game, and it was very similar to Johnny Evans's uh, yellow card on, um, I think it was Aubameyang. Do you think uh, Johnny Evans's should have been a red then, or should Laporte's have been a yellow, or it's, both? It's, it's, we'll, we'll bang on. It's 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 difficult, right? Because obviously there is different discretions, different uh, referees see the games different ways. It depends on the balance and the flow of the game, how a referee's decision gets made. But I think the, really the crux of this was kind of what Jesse said earlier. The referee made the decision and the VAR didn't have enough justification to overturn that. Um, and it, w- it was exactly the same with Johnny Evans. The referee made the decision for a yellow card, but there wasn't an un- enough justification to overturn it to a red card. So, at the end of the day, you would say that VAR has done its purpose and it's just the referees just saw the challenges differently. So it's kind of hard for to say black or white, that's mm. right, that's wrong, because that's just not how football works. That's not how the rules work. Well, that's, the, that's right. It's a reflection of the rule of anything, isn't it? It's the fact that the rule is open to interpretation and this is what happens. Yeah, Fair enough. Um, boys, were either of you surprised that Pep seemed to to keep a remarkably sort of level head throughout that the first half, or you thought Pep seemed to be uh, justifiably uh, calm despite the the red card and the fact that they were one nil one nil down at home? It almost it was almost like that he wasn't actually calm. He was just giving that Pep vibe where he just sits back and goes like, "Oh well, fuck all of you anyway." Uh, like where he just, he doesn't, he just doesn't involve himself because he's that pissed off that he doesn't do anything. I don't think he was calm. I think he was fuming, but he was so angry that he's like, well, I'm not even going to try. 
the, the shot that I saw as Laporte was was walking off towards the tunnel was um, this shot of uh, Pep in the in the uh, the foreground and Laporte walking off in the background, and Pep doesn't even look towards Laporte, and obviously that can be done with just some some clever camera work, or like you say, he was absolutely excuse me seething at the time. So um, I wish I could have seen uh, that that in in uh, in full, but. Interesting. I think that that image is the definition of I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. Yeah. But uh, like you can't imagine Pep having that sort of an attitude, right? No, you you would assume that Pep would just be mad. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's actually that could actually have massive ramifications for Laporte as a player because um he's he's been keeping stones out of the team mm. um this season. And, and all it takes, you've seen it with yeah. Pep before. That's all it takes is you make that's one mistake takes. and you never get back in the team. Exactly. So I think that it could be more than just a, a one-game ban for, for Laporte if Stones plays well. Well, and I mean, to, to borrow an earlier um, pun that I used before, you, you would have thought that Stones would have been super effective against Crystal Palace, right? But, Stones glass houses. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, with, uh, there was... <laughs> Um, one thing I thought was interesting uh, mentioned about Pep sort of not not seeming to be losing his shit over the the fact that his team were one 0 down. They were playing pretty well, but um, obviously there was plenty of issues there uh, for his team. Um, one thing I noticed was that Zaha seemed seemed to uh, I guess take all of Pep's sort of reserved uh, anger, and and Zaha was just had it all out on display in a very Wolf Zaha sort of manner um, during his clash with uh, Bernardo Silva. Did you guys catch this? I'm, so. I'm not sure. Not sure which okay. incident, though, mate. Which one are you referring well, to? And, and that's it. There were there were multiple incidences, but I mean, it, like, um, Palace were were one 0 up at this stage, and and Zaha, uh, I think, got fouled, and then and Bill was whispered something into his ear, and then just off he went. And he, like we've seen, Will Zaha just get sort of baited and goaded into into reacting all the time. But normally, it's when Palace are losing, and obviously, all of the pressure is on Zaha to to get them back into the game. But at this point, he scored the goal. They're up one 0 and he still manages to get goaded and and almost um, sort of. I, I think at one point he gets a yellow card and. He's sort of thinking, like, come on, mate! Like, it's frustrating. Yeah. I'm not even, I'm not even a Palace fan, and I was frustrated at him. But, um, but it's also uh, what makes him such a good player, right? Is that he plays on that edge of of emotion. That's what makes him such a good player. Is the same thing that makes him such a frustrating player. Mm. And look, he uh, very late on, uh, before the eventual second goal, um, Zaha did get a a disallowed goal as well. And I think it was because he was probably close to being about two metres offside. But um, (laughs) his head was still very much in the game, though. So um, interesting, I guess, uh, from that perspective. Um, not long after Zaha's disallowed goal, Gabby Jesus had a disallowed goal. And look, I've got to say, this, this was close to being my moment of the week because um, Gabby Jesus, uh, he, he wheeled off. He thought he'd scored. No one even considered that it could have been offside. Um, and it had shades of like, you remember that Champions League? I think it was the semi final a couple of years ago. Sterling. Where, yeah, it was it was like that all over again. And, and I mean, everyone has lined up on halfway and everyone thinks it's a goal. And then for it to come back, oh, Chef's kiss. <laughs> just, um, it, I, I think um, uh, it, it also demonstrated like just how Foden's just in the zone now as a player where it just takes one moment, turns the guy inside out, puts the ball on an absolute sixpence. Like that was an out, outrageous um, chip cross. Um, 
and yeah i mean obviously unlucky for city but um i was just going to say uh, another thing i was going to mention before you were talking about city a lot um tommy but um huge scalp for Vieira, which maybe we're about to hit now but i just thought um considering that he's already shown that he can mix it with the big boys so far um we've got to remember some of these good uh performances that palace have had at city in recent years have been under hodgson so playing it's very like, different football with like, a lot of different players too exactly um, exactly so it's like a different manager comes in with actually quite a few different players and they still beat them in their backyard Vieira's history with the the City Football Group adds an extra element to that as well. He's obviously been a part of their coaching setup for for a few years now, and a few different clubs uh, involved with City. So to go to go to City um, and get a result like that, um, yeah, it's it's you know big props to Vieira for what it, for what he's been able to do. Boys, before we move on to the next game, I did just want to give a shout out to the final goal because I thought this was a really good goal. Um, the uh, the final goal uh, where Palace finished off City in very City-esque fashion. Uh, the counter-attack looked like it had broken down when it went to Zahar, but um, they managed to rescue it. And uh, even though Benteke was, was screaming for the ball for about four occasions from different players, um, they did manage to find the goal um, with Conor Gallagher ended up putting uh, the ball on the back of the net. Um Makes the uh, the table very very interesting now um, with with Chelsea clear um, at the top uh, uh, by three points with with Liverpool dropping points as well. Um, who we're about to now talk about as well. Um, absolute belter of a game. I thought this one between uh, Liverpool and Brighton. Um, Brighton, uh, sorry, uh, Liverpool looked to have had the game wrapped up at two 0 um, and there was a disallowed third goal for for Liverpool all before half time. But Brighton did find a way back into the game through Enoch Mwepu, aka the computer. Um, just had to shoot on that in because it's still <laughs> the best nickname in the Premier League. <laughs> But um, Brighton looked good for a, a, um, a point as they found an equaliser just after the hour mark from a goal worthy of a point against uh, one of the best and most consistent teams uh, in the Premier League of the last few years as Brighton went from front to back against a very set Liverpool defence. So it wasn't in transition uh, from from the Brighton goalkeeper Sanchez to Cucurella, uh, Lallana, Trossard, and then just great finish from Trossard. And it... it I think um, we've talked probably in the last uh, last eighteen months or so about how um, Potter's team uh, they do play some good football, but but finally this was good football with a good finish at the end, and it meant something because it was against a big team as well. So um, really big moment for Brighton, really big moment I think for Graham Potter as well. Um, Jesse, a uh, question for you, mate. Uh, Liverpool looked like they were motivated for a revenge against the team that they lost to last season at Anfield. Uh, a Brighton Liverpool's bogey team now. I suppose. I suppose they are for now. Yeah. I mean, they. <laughs> I, I don't think there was any um, underestimating Brighton. I think Brighton have done enough, um, obviously in previous seasons, but particularly this season, for everyone to have um, their respect. But um, I think it was just a hundred percent a combination of Brighton showing that they are a serious team this year, but also. A mixture of that and Liverpool becoming a bit complacent and I, I think that Klopp would argue a little bit about them not being complacent but I think it, you just can't escape from the fact that they were completely in the driver's seat um one of your earlier comments in the group chat demo was that they were just they were just looking like they were in the zone basically and and they were like they were they could have had three four goals um if Firmino actually put them away there would have been three or four goals and we may have looked at a different game that may have been beyond Brighton but at the end of the day 
if you take in the second half into account, Brighton had the better chance to win the game. And it's it's incredible to think that actually a point at the end of the day was probably a better result um, for Liverpool than Brighton, which is it's it just is a classic game of two halves. You know, it really was. Um, but I have to say, um, it's it's hard to escape when you're up two nil to look at it as a positive. Like it is one of those really frustrating ones. But I think like a lot of people in the Liverpool supporter base and um, you know losing their shit and 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 panicking and all this kind of thing. And I'm just like. This is the reality of the league now. You want you want teams like Brighton and Villa and all the and, and West Ham, Tommy, to be um, um, there to upset the apple cart. Well, you can't you can't want all those things and then have them not upset your apple cart now and again. And um, I think you saw from the City game, you saw from the Liverpool game, um, it's going to be a, a really really interesting race. And just because Chelsea's three points clear for me, that doesn't really mean anything at this stage. I mean, if they're six, nine, twelve points clear, then we should be worried. Um, but it's very early days. Jesse, it's interesting that uh, your your reflection of the game that it was it was almost a a better point for Liverpool than it was for Brighton. I I actually went to bed at half time um, and yeah. thought Liverpool are probably going to win this by four or five goals, like they have been. Um, you know, it it could have, like you said, it could have been with the disallowed goal. There could have been another one or two. It it could have nearly been four or five nil at half time. And I was like, all right, it's, it's time for bed. I'll wake up in the morning and I'll. And I'll see another cricket score. And when I saw the score, I was like, oh, I really didn't expect that. And mm. then when I read and I watched the highlights and I read a lot of reviews about the game, it was it, it almost felt like Liverpool escaped with a point, um, which yeah. I, I couldn't believe after what I had seen for the 40 minutes of the game that I watched. Which is what I mean. Like, you can't have a performance like that in the first half and then say that the second half was 100% just because Brighton were playing as well as Brighton can play. It was a combination between that and Liverpool really did drop the ball and got punished for it. So, And um, I mean, we they did yeah. do that against Manchester United um, last weekend, even though they won 5-0. The last probably 35 minutes after the fifth mm. goal, they really looked poor in yeah. terms of... It's- but it mm. was it was very similar in the in the fact that they... Uh, they took their foot off the gas and they really had no motivation to kind of do anything. Yeah. So you get your Jews in that, in that situation. I think that, that that's what they, um, that's what they deserved. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So um, look, uh, depending on your perspective, it's a, it's either a point point gained or two points dropped, but um, does leave Liverpool in, uh, second position, three points behind Chelsea, who will talk about how they went shortly. Um, Leicester in uh, the early game hosted Arsenal. And, and this one was, I think last week I said that that Arsenal were kind of like winding back the clock and they kind of did a, uh, similar things here as well, um, winding back the clock uh, with, a, with a very handy result, uh, 2-0 win um, against Leicester at Leicester as well. Um, Arsenal got off to a great start with two goals in the first 20 minutes and that's the way it finished. Um, goals from Gabriel and Emil Smith Rowe. Um, we've kind of already alluded to the big, uh, big two moments out of this game that I wanted to discuss, which was Ramsdale um, showing uh, 
proving me wrong that he's actually a very good goalkeeper. Um, made eight saves in this one, which, um, yeah, that's, that's quite significant. Um, there was a couple that were just fantastic. There was one, I think, around the hour mark where he um, – well, sorry, just before halftime, there was one where um, he saved it onto the bar. That was a really clutch save and then it ended up getting cleared off the line by one of the defenders. And there was another one about the hour mark where it's just been slammed into his chin or his throat, which, again, was a really brave save as well. So um, Ramsdale, Ramsdale are doing good things when, i got to say, I wasn't expecting him to do good things this year at Arsenal. So stuff there. The other thing uh, which we've kind of already talked about was the Johnny Evans uh, moment where unlucky or maybe lucky not to to get sent off um, uh, for his foul on Aubameyang. So um, interesting times there. And I know some uh, some Arsenal fans were saying, oh, it's different rules for, for Arsenal. But I mean, obviously that's just um, the length that some people watch watch their team through. Tommy, one, um, of, the things that, one of the things that really stood out to me in this game was how poor the midfield for Leicester were. Um, it, the, if you actually watch the um, the lead up to, I think it's the Smith Rowe goal, where they start from the back, it's just like, I think um, uh, one of the midfield players, I've forgotten which one it was for Arsenal, but he had about five touches before he picked up the, um, the pass forward and chipped it over about two or three defenders. So not only did he have all the time in the world to pick the pass, he then picked the pass and cut out two or three players and just one lob pass. Um, so it was, was like it the party. No, it was party the other. It was, it was, the pass, wasn't it? Maybe it was. Who was the other guy that we um we basically hadn't heard of until Zambi. last night? Sambi. Yeah. So <laughs> it was. It was. Um. It was basically. It was worrying from. Uh, even just from a like watching it as a neutral, you're like Leicester are going to get cut to ribbons if they leave it that open. And um, Arsenal didn't need to be that progressive after that because I'd got the two goals. But it. it uh, I guess what we, we we were talking about last night. <clears throat> is that Leicester have got away with a lot this season. They've got they've got themselves out of um, really like situations they probably didn't deserve to get themselves out of, including in the Europa League. Uh, and this kind of felt like a little bit of that sort of writing itself and coming back to bite them a little bit because you just can't give up that much space and expect to uh, defend uh, other teams not to take advantage. And Arsenal pounced on their opportunities. They're, they're really desperate for Ndidi to come back, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's a big loss in in their midfield. But I, I think the big thing from this game for me was it almost feels like there's been a line in the sand um, at Arsenal in the last couple of weeks where, you know, as much as I've enjoyed seeing the decline of the way Arsenal have played football after, you know, them having been in the Champions League for, was it, 18 years straight and, and, and then what's come after that and post-Wenger is they, they almost feel like Sometimes they can actually play good football but never get a result. And lately it feels like they haven't really been playing as good a football as they can, but they've still been getting results. And I think if, if you look at last night, if you look at we – we're talking about how poor Leicester's midfield were, but if, if, if you look at the on balance of the game, Leicester probably deserved uh, something out of that game in terms of the pure amount of shots they had, nearly double the amount of shots on target, like double the amount of corners, double the amount of forward pressure. Like, XG. Yeah. If you, I mean, if, if you're looking at numbers and data, Leicester really looked like they dominated that game, but Arsenal went ran away 2-0 winners. When that's sort of what's been the other way around for the last probably, you know, couple of years of Arsenal is that they look like they should be winning those games, but they're just not getting any points because of one or two errors that they make. And they've been on the other end of that lately. So... You know, something something at Arsenal has changed. Uh, it's going to be interesting 
to in in retrospect watch the Amazon documentary that's being filmed of them this season to kind of see what and where was that moment that have sort of it's a kind of light switch is flicked on at Arsenal and 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 I think another thing to take away from that game is I think I think I read that eight of their eleven um, are eligible for the Premier League under twenty three rules and that's got to be through homegrown that's got to be through age so if if you look at Arsenal starting 11 and they've got essentially eight of their squad are homegrown or young enough to play in the youth Premier League so that's that's another good sign for for them if you're an Arsenal fan. Lots of parallels between uh, Arsenal and Manchester United and sort of their post Wenger and and Fergie uh, timelines but I at this point you'd have to say that I think Arsenal uh, are doing their rebuild uh, more thoroughly and, and probably more completely, I think, at this point, because they've kind of gone in completely different directions. And and I think here we're seeing, um, I think expectations are lower at Arsenal, but that I think is helping Arteta, um, I guess, bring in some younger players and, and I guess sort of slowly build towards something as opposed to Manchester United where they've just thrown money at... Um, I guess some some famous players and yeah, well, well, I think it's similarly to what Jesse alluded to before about having this sort of interim manager. Arteta, I don't think was ever looked at as the marquee man to lead the team. He was kind of the the interim man to to get us through this 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 rebuild process where the fans are going to have a little bit more love and a little bit more sway with you, and they're not going to be as harsh on mm-hmm. you because of who you are. It's almost like that's what Xavi's role is going to be at Barcelona. And, and as soon as Arsenal are past that kind of um, that rebuild and they're back sort of at a, at a better level, Arteta's inevitably going to have to step aside and a big manager will come in. Um, and what, whatever the reasoning of getting rid of him, he's, he's, he's done his role of being the sort of interim manager that just takes the punches and takes the pressure off everyone in the team. Speaking of taking the pressure off, no European football. Cannot yeah, be um, can, cannot be ignored here because they they are literally just preparing. For, I mean, apart from the old um, uh, FA Cup or League Cup, they are literally just preparing for Premier League every week, and that helps when you've got a young squad. Huge difference. Um, all right, sorry, boys. We're going to have to keep moving though. Newcastle they hosted Chelsea, um, although uh, Chelsea didn't break the deadlock until the 65th minute. 65th minute um, was a pretty routine victory for Chelsea. Um, a double for Reese James saw Newcastle Stadium renamed Reese James's Park, uh, and Jorginho he completed the route from the penalty spot. Um, Newcastle remained managerless, though, after Steve Bruce left the club a week ago. Uh, Jose Fonseca, he appears to be the the number one candidate at this point for the manager job. But um, as I was saying before, uh, Ten Hag, he seems to be uh, also within a shout. But um, curiously, in in addition to what I was saying, Ten Hag and Overmars, um, or Mark Overmarks, as I've written erroneously in, in my notes, um, he uh, those two are being mooted as a bit of a, a package deal, manager and sporting director, head of scouting, um, that kind of thing, which uh, would be really interesting because obviously before we said that the, the new owners are going to throw a metric shit ton of, of money at the club and some of that's going to be uh, in the academy, some of it's going to be on new players and um, they, they're going to need someone very responsible to, to handle all of that money in terms of selecting targets and the like. So Two, two um, for one package sounds like something you get from Sports Direct. Uh, <laughs> too soon, mate. How, how too ironic. Soon. Can't, can't mention it. Don't mention the war. Did you did you see um Tommy that um apparently Reese James uh, asked Jorginho if he could 
take the penalty. And Jorginho just said no. He was on a hat trick, and he just said, "Nah, mate. Sorry, mate. That's, That's not how brutal. it is." Yeah, yeah he's and on I'm ha- disappointed. Disappointed it wasn't a jumpy boy penalty. It was just a normal one. <laughs> yeah, there was some stat though. I'm not sure what it was, but apparently, like, what for Reese James to get that penalty, it would be like within the club, it would have been like a a record for maybe it was a wing back thing. I don't know what it was, but there was some record on the line. And Georgina is like, nah, sorry, mate. No, thanks. I think well, uh, if, if, if we go back to talking about kind of how the game played out um, from, from watching the highlights up until the 65th minute, I feel like the Chelsea fans would have been getting really, really nervous at that point, because mm. I don't think I've seen a more dominant performance that was still nil, nil in a long time. Like Chelsea mm. were just absolutely battering Newcastle, but just couldn't get the ball in the back of the net. But when they finally did, it almost felt like Newcastle went, oh, well, you know, we're going to lose now anyway. And Chelsea kind of just ran away with it in the end. But yeah, I think the longer that stayed nil-nil, um, the you know, the, the more squeaky bum time there was for Chelsea fans. Yeah, it's um those they're always tricky games, I guess. Uh, sometimes when you're playing against a team that maybe feels as though they don't have anything to lose, as Newcastle might have in this instance. Um, although it's sort of hard to know sort of what the attitude or what the um what the view is within the club at the moment. I mean, I, I don't know who um like you, Damo, only caught the highlights of this one, but I don't know like who's running the the match day. Um, sort of situation for Newcastle even at this point. It's it's it seems suboptimal the fact that um they haven't appointed a manager yet. Um a couple of things that uh, I wanted to point out from this match. The first one, uh, my favorite bit of commentary from this one. Um Newcastle uh, looking for an early breakthrough. Uh Fraser ma- looks to make it happen, but doesn't make it happen. Um that that was a great I thought some great commentary. Um uh, and the other thing I wanted to point out was that uh mentioned that Reese James has already uh he scored two goals in this game. Um Chelsea have had 15 different goal scorers this season already in the Premier League, and their top two goal scorers are both fullbacks. That's Chili B and Reese James with four and three respectively. And then you've also got Thiago Silva, uh, Antonio Ruger, Rudiger. Trevor Chalabar and Marcus Alonso, who also chipped in with goals. So just uh, like real Chelsea areas over the last sort of maybe 18 months, two years um, there with all of the goal scorers and just further evidence that the, the number nine jersey is still cursed there. So they've, um, if, if Chelsea have got 15 different goal scorers, they've had, uh, I'm pretty sure there's only three teams in the league or maybe four teams in the league that have scored more than 15 goals in total so far. So it's pr- pretty incredible to see that that kind of spread across your team, and I think I as a Chelsea fan, you'd be so happy at that because you're not you're not reliant on um, a goal scorer, and, and you can see when you're ever reliant on a goal scorer like Spurs are with Harry Kane, and those goals dry up, then you're in big trouble. Tuchel must love a smorgasbord, you know, loves a good spread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, where are we? Fifteen goals. Um, yeah, you're right. There's, I think there is four, six, seven teams. Five. I think that was good. Pretty probably much. The top yeah. five are the only teams that have scored more than 15 and then maybe Everton as well. Well, even Arsenal and Brighton have scored 11, 12. So yeah, um, it really is. There's not many teams that have actually scored 15 goals. So, um, it's pretty incredible. Um, 
Let's keep moving, though. Burnley, they hosted Brentford. Um, Burnley were the only uh, home side this weekend uh, to take all three points um, as every home team either lost or drew, which I thought was a a bit of an interesting stat for everyone. Um, A Chris Chris Wood worldy set the tone as Burnley scored three times in the first half before Brentford finally got a late consolation. Another stunner, this time from Saman Godos. Um. A bit of mayo there for everyone. Um, Brentford did have one chance that was cleared off the line by Tar- uh, Tarkovsky, and Pope did make it a couple of great saves. So um, maybe a little bit unlucky, but, but I think by by this point, everyone knows how Burnley play, so it shouldn't be any surprises there that um, Brentford did have plenty of chances. Stat Three for losses in a row now for Brentford, though. Um, mm. Obviously started so brightly, found themselves at the, the pointy end of the, of the league after, you know, was it six or seven games? And now they've lost three in a row and they've conceded more goals in those last three games in their first seven games combined. So it's um, something at Brentford doesn't doesn't feel quite right or doesn't feel like like it was uh, this time last month even. So, yeah, that, that, like, it's, mm. you, you go through those ups and downs over, over a Premier League season. Um but Brentford need to kind of snap out of that one quickly because as soon as you start losing in the league, it's easy to keep losing. It's it's really awkward with the fixtures too because they played against they played against Chelsea. They played against a couple of teams that they probably weren't expected to beat, and they did pretty damn well against them and only just lost right. So like the the, the even the defeat seemed incredible. But then they also going to go into a really quick transition to what should be easier fixtures for them or winnable fixtures. And the big question mark was having played this way up until now and having players like Tony, who usually have very progressive dropping back so deep to receive the ball and play a slightly different role against better teams, what are they going to do as soon as they start playing a Burnley or a Norwich and actually a team that they need to get three points? Is is mm. is Tony all of a sudden going to go another 10, 15 minutes up the pitch and be way more progressive? Does that leave them more exposed at the back? Are they going to concede more goals? There was all these questions coming into the Burnley game and what happens is that they, they concede three goals. Um, so it'll be a real interesting, like, it'd be really interesting to see how they line up next week and how they, um, prepare because, you know, Thomas Frank, basically whatever his plan was, he got out diced and now he's going to have to sort of go back to the drawing board and be like, all right, maybe we overcompensated too much in the other direction. Boys, we talked about, uh, Brentford's, uh, real drop-off in form. Are they the new Norwich from, from two years, seasons ago? That's, that's harsh. I don't think that it's a that's appalling. Yeah, that that, that that is that is I, one I of the worst insults you can give any football team. I think I wouldn't wish that on anyone. <laughs> but um, ironically, um, Brentford actually play Norwich uh, next weekend, so uh, I think that that's actually going to be a very interesting game for for some of the reasons you you guys just talked about um, to see how they play, and and also Norwich will be looking at that game going. They'll be absolutely licking their fingers uh, like they've been eating CCs, just with a with a view to um, that that uh, Brentford are there for the taking. So um, should be a cracker. Um, but... you got to find a way to score goals. I think they've only got two all season. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Finally, uh, Watford, they hosted Southampton. Uh, Southampton uh, got the breakthrough through Shea Adams with a really lovely goal uh, from just outside the area. No backlift, just picked his spot um, and a goal very worthy of three points. Um, some observations from me uh, noted that Southampton in uh, wore red shorts, um, just hated it i thought it looked terrible i don't know why they didn't wear black shorts just anyway i know i know why they didn't wear black shorts but still it frustrates me 
Um, and I also wanted to give a shout out to, to McCarthy, the Southampton goalkeeper, for that massive save really late on in the game. Um, they talk about sometimes that a goalkeeper sometimes will, will make a save that's just as good as scoring a goal, and, and that was one of them. What about Adam um, Armstrong, who looks like Danny Ings off Wish? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay that. Yeah, he's, uh, they they they're not quite getting what they need out of him, and I think if if um if it was, was Broja or Brocher, if he was if Broja. he wasn't mm. if he wasn't um injured injured, I think he would have started this game. So Armstrong was out there to sort of prove a point, and again, just didn't quite convert. Mm. All right, boys, uh, still three matches to be played. We'll whip through some previews and score predictions very rapidly. Uh, first up, Norwich play Leeds. Uh, Norwich still winless. Uh, they play uh, host Leeds. Both teams in the relegation zone. Uh, real sense that um, Norwich uh, really need the three points here, not just to get off the mark, but also uh, against a relegation rival. Uh, Leeds are still missing Patrick Banford, but Rodrigo's filled the, bre- uh, the breach admirably lately. Um Boys, who who are you taking uh, here for the win? Norwich or Leeds? I'm going to say Leeds, but I think I was talking about Norwich need to find a way to score goals. If if they're going to score against anyone, it's going to be Leeds, um, who arguably look like the worst defense in the league at the moment. So um, if they can't score against Leeds, then who are they going to score against? So you, you said they're looking at Brentford as, as a game that's a chance to get their first win. I think they'll be all out to get a win um, tonight. See, I think it's interesting because everyone is expecting Leeds to to beat Norwich because of reputation. But as you pointed out, there's that kind of like underlying issue with Leeds with the players missing and also the defensive um, frailties. However, I actually think coming full circle, Norwich will be so desperate to score a goal that they might even play Leeds into form. So Leeds will probably <laughs> still con- Leeds will probably still concede a goal, but it, it could blow out. It could be like a three-one to Leeds just because Norwich will be so desperate to to win um, the game. Just so. to score a goal, <laughs> just to score a goal. Yeah. All right, uh, Claret and Blue Derby um, between Aston Villa hosting my West Ham. Uh, Czech billionaire Daniel Kretinsky uh, is rumored to be buying a minority stake in West Ham this week, so plenty of foot there. Possibly one of the Dildo brothers or both the Dildo brothers selling part of their stake. Um, does appear as though unlikely that he's going to buy a majority stake because I think um, uh, the two Davids, they have to pay uh, a penalty uh, on the stadium deal if they um, if they sell before I think it's another 18 months time so a little bit early for that yet but um, Villa have lost their last three games in the Premier League um, and you've got to go back to at least January last year uh, for Villa's most recent uh, Claret and Blue Derby win um, that was against uh, uh, Burnley um, but then you've got to go all the way back to May 2015 for the last time Villa beat West Ham so boys you got a prediction here uh, West Ham, I think, will win. And, and I think, important to note, if, if West Ham do win, they go level on points with Manchester City in third place. So Boys. Um, a, a, lot, a lot to play for for both teams, but I just think West Ham will be too good. Yeah, I think, I think it should be a cracker, mate. I think I'm, I'm going to go 3-2 West Ham. Ooh. I think uh, everyone can can join me in agreement here that they, they just want the, the Claret and Blue to win. <laughs> Well, um, I think um, Ma- Ma- Martinez was meant to be out, but he's back though, isn't he? Because he oh, went right. back to Argentina during the week for a family emergency, and then he came back for the game. So, um, for a while there, I thought you might have Antonio up against um, who the reserve goalkeeper is there. 
Sounds um, steel, steel or something. I think it is. Oh, no, it's the bright and guy, isn't it? Steer. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, I've heard they steer. call him um, Superman, the man of steel. <laughs> man of steer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, all right. And finally, Wolves, they host Everton. Wolves have found some good form of late uh, with three wins and a draw since September, whilst Everton have done the opposite. They've hit the skids and haven't won since beating Norwich in September. Um Everton also remain in the midst of an injury crisis with Decore, uh, Calvert-Lewin and Cheng Tosin, uh, everyone's favourite forgotten player, uh, are all unavailable. Um, however, last week we did see that the return of Richarlison is a massive boost for Everton. Boys, uh, you see anything other than a Wolves victory? Draw. I think, I think it's going to be a draw. I think it'll be a boring match. I Jesse. think it's going to be nil all. Yeah, I, that's my first reaction too when I when I see this, which that inevitably means that it's going to be four all or six two or geez, you just never know. Because <laughs> because I think Wolves will 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 try a lot, but I think that Everton will be so scarred from last week um, that they will just be out there to uh, to to annoy them and nullify them. So draw isn't a terrible result for either team at this point. They'd probably just be happy with with uh, continuing to to clock up points, I guess. Um, but look, that wraps things up pretty much for for this week. Um, don't forget to tune in next week for uh, we'll have another more than a game FPL uh, prize announcement. So please tune in, tune in for that. Um, and don't forget our um, A League season preview app will be dropping on the fourteenth of November. So mark that in your calendars. Um, but until next time, enjoy the football. <laughs>